Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your love and for the truth of your character and how you run your universe and and for Jesus. And we ask that your spirit will come and transform us, enable us, and and prepare us to take this message to the world. And we ask that the avenues of communication will open in this world and that this message will go forward and that you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing Lesson 11 in Family Seasons in this title, Families of Faith. We, uh, I received an email from David Siebert uh, uh, giving an Ellen White quote I'd never seen before, so I wanted to share it with you. It comes from 17 Manuscript Release, page 143, and it says, There needs to be far more lessons in the ministry of the word of true conversion than of the arguments of the doctrines. For it is far easier and more natural For the heart that is not under the control of the Spirit of Christ to choose doctrinal subjects rather than the practical. Brilliant. You understand one of the things that Come and Reason does, and we've been doing it for a long time, is demonstrating how God's principles, laws, designs, protocols, the doctrines of Scripture have a practical application to how we live our lives here and now. We're connecting science, experience, and Scripture and showing how rightly understood it actually applies to the choices and decisions we make to bring us health and healing. That's what we've been doing. Sabbath lesson. Memory text from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, the New King James Version. Therefore, we also, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us say again every weight and the sin which is so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What does author and finisher of our faith mean? The originator and finishes the task. Beginning and end, originator. Does it have anything to do with righteousness by faith? Does it have anything to do with the plan of salvation? When we say the author and finisher of our faith, is it referring to the plan of salvation? Yes. Yes. So could we say he's the author and finisher of the plan of salvation? Yes. Is this the same or different message from what is taught in the sanctuary symbolism? Same or different? Then could we say that this is the same as righteous by faith and the same as cleansing the sanctuary? Yeah. So how are all of these the same? author and finisher of our faith, uh, author and finisher of the plan of salvation, author and finisher of righteousness by faith, and cleansing of the sanctuary. Uh, Can you tell me how all of them teach the same thing? Connect it all together. Bring and integrate all the pieces. That's the goal, isn't it? To demonstrate that, to show how it all teaches the exact same thing with different models, different metaphors, different words, different approaches, but ultimately it's the same core truth, isn't it? Do we see it that way? Do we, do, do we teach our doctrines this way? Or do we have them stand alone as this is one thing, this is another thing, this is another thing? Integrate. Bring the pieces together. So how are these the same? Well, what is the problem that sin caused that the plan of salvation is designed to fix? Start with diagnosis. What's the problem? When Adam and Eve sinned, did God or God's law get changed? Did the condition of humankind get changed? Yes. And did they get changed in some aspect of their actual being? 
In, in other words, when they sinned, were they still the same in heart, mind, character, motive? And the only thing that changed was now they had to change legal standing before God, but, but everything else about them was the same. Or, or did something actually change in them, in their being? They're different now. So, so remember, what kind of law is God's law? Design law, protocols, and reality works. So when Adam and Eve broke God's law, it changed them and now incited a terminal condition. If that's the state, if that's the problem, then what is necessary for humankind to be saved? Healing. Healing. So a remedy to cure the condition is necessary, right? Something that will cure it and restore trust in the one who has the remedy. Very simple. We have to trust the one with the remedy, and he has to have a remedy. That's what's necessary. Well, what is the remedy? What is it that fixes our condition? That's the that's the outcome of the remedy. The outcome puts us uh, the the outcome or the remedy puts us back in harmony. That's what it does. That's right. But what is the remedy that does that? A new nature. A new nature. Yes, a new character. And where does that come from? Could any natural descendant of Adam and Eve develop a perfect, sinless human nature or character? So how did Christ become the author and finisher of our salvation or our faith? He came as a human, and by using his human capacities, his human abilities, he overcame every temptation to sin and developed a perfect, sinless, mature human character. So Hebrews 5, 8, and 9, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Made perfect? Wasn't he always perfect? No, he's always sinless. Sinless. Bible perfection is not about a state of sinlessness. Bible perfection is being perfectly settled into all the truths in your heart, mind, and character about God that you cannot be shaken from it. And Christ developed a perfect character. Character cannot be created by God. Get your mind around that idea. God can create a sinless being. Angels, humans, sinless. But character is developed by their choices. So in order to save humankind, we need a sinless character. There are not, none of us can do that. Christ came and did that for us. He also exposed Satan as a liar and revealed the truth about God and his methods, thus providing the restored, the evidence for restored trust. We can trust him. We've seen the truth. We've seen the evidence. We've seen that even though he has all power, he doesn't abuse that power. He, he didn't even use his power to stop us from killing him. You know the old saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? Well, not in Christ. Christ proved that's not true. He wouldn't even stop us from abusing him. He left us free. He's safe with the power. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He's worthy to have all power because he's demonstrated he's the only one safe with all power. So Jesus is the author of our salvation by taking up humanity damaged by Adam and healing it in his person, providing the remedy to our salvation while also providing the truth to restore us to trust. How is he the finisher? 
because he's in heaven directing all the agencies of heaven to apply in us what he has achieved. He said that the spirit would come. If he leaves, the spirit will come. And the spirit is not going to speak on his own when he comes. He's going to speak only what he hears. That's what Jesus said, right? Who's the spirit listening to? Whose representative is he on the earth now? Jesus is representative. So he is here fulfilling the purposes of Christ in us. So the human species was saved in the person of Jesus, and each individual human who is saved is saved by trusting in Jesus and experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit to renew their heart and mind and reproducing Christ-like character. So justification. First, the human species was justified or set right or put right with God in the person of Jesus Christ, in his humanity. And then as individuals, we are set right in heart with God from fear and distrust to love and trust. Through the evidences of Christ and the working of the Spirit, we make that choice to trust him. Our hearts are set right. And sanctification is the daily healing of heart, mind, character that occurs as we grow in our relationship and walk with him. So Bible perfection is perfect love and trust such that fear and selfishness has been replaced with love and trust to the point that we become like the people described in Revelation 12, 11. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. And we have examples of this in scripture. Job is perfect and righteous in all his ways. There's no one on the earth like him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were perfect. When they were threatened with death, They didn't love their life so much as to shrink from death. They would not compromise. They trusted God. We know that our God can deliver us from the flames, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow. God, I trust you with my life. I'm not going to act to protect myself. That's Bible perfection. Loving God and trusting him so much that you will not let the instinct to act in self-interest cause you to deviate from God's plan. It's not about all the little things that we keep track of. It's not about, did you get the TV off before sunset? Did the water come above your knees on Sabbath afternoon? That drink that you would just serve, did it have 1% alcohol in it you didn't know about? All the little things. Did you eat cheese yesterday? All the little things that we want to make the issue are not the issue. It's your character. So righteousness by faith is trusting God and being transformed into Christ's likeness. The cleansing of the sanctuary is Christ working in our hearts and minds to restore his righteousness and remove all lies about him and defects from our character. So here are some quotes from Ellen White that I just think are very helpful that help describe this. Desire of Ages 762. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ coming to earth as a man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. Notice, developed it. He didn't have it at birth. He had to walk. This is why it would not have done our salvation any good for Herod to have killed baby Jesus. We've got a sinless baby Jesus on earth and Herod kills him. We've got the blood shed of a sinless sacrifice to pay the legal penalty to an offended God. Why isn't that good enough? Because it was never the problem. Somebody, some human being, had to actually fix what Adam broke in us. 
These he offers, this perfect character, he offers as a free gift to all who receive them. His life stands for the life of men. The human species is set right. He now is the second head. He is the, the second Adam. He is now the head of humanity. He represents us. He's the human that is perfect and sinless. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Not through a legal payment. Not through a blood sacrifice. That's not how we get forgiveness. We get forgiveness because God is forgiving. Period. But forgiveness alone doesn't help us. Because forgiveness is not the problem. The problem isn't, well, the only problem we have is God's offended and we've got to get some forgiveness from him. And once we get it, we're good. That was never the problem. He always forgave. The problem was our condition. So we needed a cure as well. Keep reading. For the, through the forbearance of God, more than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. Not the righteousness of the law is written down in a record book and you're declared to be righteous even though you're not. You're actually made righteous. Notice what she says next. God can be, and she quotes Romans 3.26, just and the justifier of them which believe in Jesus. What is justice? Doing the right thing, providing a remedy for the one you love, and setting them right, healing them. That's what justice is. Always has been. This penal legal thing is so corrosive, it cheats people out of this. Zarvages 172. No human invention can find a remedy for the sinning soul. The fountain of the heart must be purified before the streams can become pure. He who is trying to reach heaven by his own works and keeping the laws attempting an impossibility. There is no safety for one who has merely a legal religion, a form of godliness. The Christian's life is not a modification or improvement of the old, but a transformation of nature. There is a death to self and sin and a new life altogether. This change can be brought about only by the effectual work of the Holy Spirit. You will see why there's such an attack recently on the Trinity, on the Godhead, to take the Holy Spirit out of people's life. Listen, next quote, Zarvages 671. The Spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent. And without this the sacrifice of Christ would have been of no avail. The power of evil had been strengthening for centuries, and the submission of men to this satanic captivity was amazing. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead, who would come with no modified energy, but, with, but in the fullness of divine power. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's redeemer. It is by the spirit that the heart is made pure. Through the spirit, the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature. Notice, it's through the spirit, the spirit makes effectual. What's make effectual mean? Make effective. Makes effective. What was wrought out by the, what was wrought out by the world's redeemer? In the quote we read, he came to earth and developed... He, that's, what, that was, that's what was wrought out, a perfect human character. And the Holy Spirit makes it effectual in us, thus we become, as she said, partakers of the divine nature through the Spirit. Yes? But also through the revelation of God's true heart and then the rectifying the misunderstandings that had been for, for millennia. 
and the lies that have been spread. So it's like way to stop and also showing God's love, character, presence. So the revelation of truth that you're describing destroys the lies to win us to trust. Yes. And then once in trust, we open the heart. The spirit comes and does what we're reading here, makes effectual in us and regenerates us. So you're exactly right. We have to have both truth to restore trust. And then we have to have the regenerating agency to take the victories of Christ, the character, and reproduce it in us. And then the last quote I want to share with you, OFC 2.11. The Holy Spirit ever abides with him who is seeking for perfection of Christian character. Does that perfection of Christian character scare you? See, there's this distortion of perfection that focuses on behavior and monitors all the deeds you do, the last generation theology that makes you have, it's this huge pressure on you for your performance. At least some versions of it. Okay? That's, notice, notice what's happening. That's not what's happening. Christian perfection is what I described. Job, nothing shook him from his trust in God. Oh, he had questions. Oh, he was agonizing. Oh, he had some, some heated conversations with God, but he trusted God. It was never shaken from it, no matter what. That's Bible perfection. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, again, could not be shaken from their loyalty and trust. Daniel, when the lions said, could not be shaken. His, he wouldn't act in self-interest to protect himself. He trusted. This is Bible perfection. This is not how we're taught through the penal legal model. Penal legal model is all about your behavior and your deeds. That's Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 1, that repentance from acts that lead to death is this milk. And those who teach that, it says, are not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. That's that false thing. So anyway, continue with the quote. The Holy Spirit ever abides with him who is seeking for perfection of Christian character. The Holy Spirit furnishes furnishes, 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 furnishes the pure motives, the living active principle that sustains striving, wrestling, believe, uh, believing souls in every emergency and under every temptation. Where does the pure motive come from? The active principle come from? The Holy Spirit. This is the power. This is the change. It's not us doing it. It's us choosing to agree, assimilate, love, like, let me keep the quote, the Holy Spirit sustains every believer amid the world's hatred, amid unfriendliness of relatives. I've never had that, have you? Unfriendliness of relatives. Uh, Amid disappointment, amid the realization of imperfection. Um, uh, Wait, what? Wait, 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 we're seeking, and the Holy Spirit, amid the realization of imperfection? We're being perfected? Christian perfection in the face of imperfection? This, is a, this woman's a nutcase, right? She's, she's a contradictory person. She doesn't know what she's... Wait. Get your mind around what's being said here. It's perfection of character. That you love and trust God with your life. And amid the mistakes of life. Ooh, wait, I can see that again. The Holy Spirit sustains the believer amid the world's hatred, amid unfriendliness of relatives, amid disappointment, amid the realization of imperfection and the mistakes of life. Depending upon the matchless purity and perfection of Christ, the victory is sure to him who looks unto the author and finisher of our faith. OFC 2.11 
Holy Spirit abides with him who seeks perfection of Christian character, brings the pure motives and the living principle. Do you see a difference in what's being described here than what we've been taught historically? Do you see why Satan likes people to focus on the imperial view, the legal view? Because it, it, it just turns their mind completely away from this. Yes. Well, and Isaiah agrees with you. Isaiah 26, uh, 12 says, Lord, you established peace for us. All that we have accomplished, all that we have accomplished, you have done for us. There it is. Yeah. So now we're going to go to our first paragraph in Sabbath's lesson. <laughs> no matter what stage of life we are in and what we have been through, or we'll face down the road. We exist against the background of culture. Our parents, our children, our homes, our families, even our, our church, all are impacted by culture in which they exist, the culture in which they exist, and greatly, greatly too. Though other factors were at play, the change of the Sabbath to Sunday was pow- a powerful example of how culture of the time powerfully negatively influenced the church. So the lesson points out that culture had an impact on changing the day of worship. It certainly did. No question about that. But, what does the change of the day give evidence of? That change of the day and the is evidence of something. A much more corrupt culture. Yes, what's it evidence of? Yes, a much more corrupt culture. What's, what's evidence it? of how they viewed God's law and that, how it functions. That's exactly right. It's evidence of how they viewed God's law, that it functions no different than Rome's law system of rules that you cannot update and change. They did not see it as design protocols. That's the real change. And that's the evidence of it. See, if they saw the, the, the laws of God like the laws of respiration or the laws of gravity, design protocols, they wouldn't vote to say, you know, our members don't have to breathe anymore. Mm-hmm. They, they wouldn't do that because they know they can't change those laws. The fact that they changed it tells us they see it differently than that. And that's the real corruption. That's the real cult. And, and the world today still sees it that way. And God is waiting for a people at this time in history to stand up and say, no, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in the midst. Come back to worship the creator whose laws are the reality upon which, which re- uh, the laws and protocols upon which reality function. That's, that's the thing. Sunday's lesson. First paragraph. As the gospel circles the globe, Christians encounter different cultures and practices, many of which pertain to family and social relationships. One of the greatest questions for Christian missionaries is in regard to how they should relate to various cultural norms about many things, including family relationships they might personally find uncomfortable. So first, I just want to mention the gospel, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it because we've done it before, but do you actually think the gospel, the good news of God's kingdom of love, has actually gone to the world? Or has a fraud gospel, an imperial dictator God who's the source of pain, suffering, and death, if you don't do what he says, has gone to the world, who needs the blood of a human sacrifice to not kill you. That's Baal worship. That's the lot. Up to the world, Christ would have come. That's right, if the truth. And, and Christianity is still taking this false version to the world. Bible symbolism calls it the mark of the beast. The beast enforces its will on others. So what would you say to a person in the Middle East, you're in the Middle East, Islamic uh, person, uh, about the gospel? What would you tell them? Well, think about that. Let's say you've gone to the Middle East and you've reached a person there and you've told them about the problem of sin caused by Adam and Eve and how it's changed the nature of humankind and God's solution for it through Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit impacts their heart and they are convicted and they give their heart to Jesus Christ and they ask for baptism to join the church. 
but they're married to four wives. <laughs> what would you tell them about that? Right, so would you let them be baptized into the church with their four wives? Probably the church would not. She said, probably the church would not. Would you require him to keep only one? Which one would he have to keep? The first one, but that was the one arranged for him by his parents when he was four. That's too bad, she says. Uh, The second one is the one that he chose and fell in love with and gave his heart to. He never gave his heart to the first one. That was just a a business arrangement made by his parents. But what is the negative impact on the others and how they are put out of a loving home and the negative impacts against them? That's exactly their question. Would we make the other wives homeless? Yes. It's complicated. It may be different for different people, but, you know, I love that statement. For every problem, a thousand solutions. And so I'm asking you, you're on the church board. What's your solution? Wait a minute. One, one possibility where they're baptized. I think those three of the four wives would love to find a husband who's dedicated to them. They don't have to share him if they're healthy. If they only want a fourth of a guy, they may want to stay. If they want a whole guy, God may at some point transition. Now, whether you're baptized or you're church members. So you're suggesting they go out and find other husbands? Well, I think at some point there could be where they may be happier. God may bring in another person's life. I don't know. Four. Four to one. How about if they're very happy with this man? And they have kids with him. And if they're divorced, they're all so, so you're suggesting he should give up his other wives? I don't know. It's complicated. And do you have to be a church member? You know, you're baptized into Jesus and you belong to church. I would propose you're baptizing into Jesus. And some fellowships would probably not let them become a member. Others may. And if that fellowship's comfortable with that, it could work. I would think most of the time, we're not God. We cannot fully love but one person. So in the New Testament... What was the criteria to hold church office, be an elder, be a deacon? Husband of one wife. One spouse. Was that a criteria to become a member of the church, to be baptized into Christ? No, only to be a leader in the church. So if someone grew, they may focus on the church and become their elder material where they can be a servant leader. They know they can't serve but one woman well. So, so if they can serve four wives, I'd like to talk to them alone in private and talk to wives. I so, so in New Testament times, do you think they were baptizing people that had more than one wife? Sounds like they probably were. Yeah. Yes, they were. But they, but they had a standard of leadership that the leadership needs to demonstrate God's ideal. But we don't keep people out of the body of Christ because they're not there. Okay. I don't think that he could throw the extra wives out on the street to become prostitutes. He's, whether he chooses to just be with one, he still has to care for the others. Okay. So I'm getting another one. What about a gay couple who are married, they live together monogamously for years and have adopted children, and they convert to Christ and want to be baptized and join the church? What do you tell them? You guys don't have as much to say on this. I hear one yes. Just not leadership. Welcome them into the church. God loves them even if we don't. Oh, God loves them even if we don't. Hmm. So uh, think about that. Is, that. is that uncomfortable for you to think about? Do you don't think that there may be some gay couples with kids, without kids, that are going to convert to Christ? You don't think that's going to happen? Despite our best efforts? Despite our best efforts to prevent that from happening? <laughs> so, this isn't just, I think, pie in the sky that's never going to be addressed. It's going to be faced. 
It's a cultural question. What's the church do? Do you require the couple to separate and the kids to go in a home without their parents that they've been raised since, since they were adopted at, at, at birth? Do you think that's an act of love and grace for a couple that's been together and living monogamously? If our privilege and our goal is to show God's love to others and be able to then let each one be convicted in their own minds, our job is to bring God's love and invite them in. Then have the Holy Spirit on each one of us. I have seen gay couples who have a better, deeper, selfless, loving relationship than many heterosexuals. Yep. So I don't yep. think it's a yep. statement. Yep. Russell? Yeah, yeah we have examples in the Old Testament where the men of Israel were commanded to divorce their wives. Oh, we're going to get to that. It's in the lesson. Okay. <laughs> okay. We're going to get that. It's in the, if, we, if we have time, we get through this. It's in the lesson. It, it comes up, in the, I think, in tomorrow's lesson. It's in tomorrow's lesson. It's been said earlier, but we don't read hearts and minds. We can't read hearts and minds. So, first, first, you're right on top. First Samuel 16, 7. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Does this only mean, does this only apply to physical attributes like skin color, height, weight, grooming, clothing, jewelry, the outward appearance, or does it apply to behavior? how we act and how we live. That man looks at the behavior of somebody, their behavior, they're two people of the same sex in a relationship. That's behavior. And we look at that and we condemn the behavior. We have no idea what's going on in the heart. Does it apply to that? Is it about behavior or is it about the heart motives and character? Can certain behaviors be sin in one circumstance, and the exact same behavior be righteousness in another circumstance? Can a person refuse to help someone in need be either an act of selfishness or an act of love depending on the need and the situation? You see, this is the point. We look on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the motive of the heart. So if we bring the gospel to people, is it about getting them to adhere to a certain list of rules and behaviors, or is it about getting people to know and love Christ? That's that selfishness and fear replaced with love, trust, and Christ-like character. What's the real focus here? When we lead people to Christ, are we primarily concerned with their eternal salvation, their heart, the sinner being restored to godliness this is our primary concern. Or when we bring someone to Christ and to church, are we concerned that they convert their behaviors, the convert behaves in a certain way that makes us comfortable? We're concerned with our comfort. And so if we're uncomfortable, we condemn their behavior because we're not really concerned with their salvation, we're concerned with making us comfortable. I see this a lot. People never bring it up, but I see it a lot. And I feel like that's probably what causes a lot of people angst and inviting others to come to Adventist churches. Is you don't know, they have habits, they have things that God hasn't healed them of, they have ways of doing things, cultural ways of doing things, and yet what are they going to face when they come to the hospital called church? Mm-hmm. Is it our job to tell people what sin in their lives needs to be resolved, or is that the job of the Holy Spirit? But where do we draw the line? Do we accept without confrontation active 
child molesters, rapists, murderers, thieves, adulterers, addicts who refuse to get help and promote their addiction and try to get others to to join them? Do we accept the active, ongoing problems like this without comment, without confrontation? Do we accept the active gossiper and slanderer? Do we accept them? Because the gossiper and slanderer are in the same category in Scripture as all the ones I just read. If we decided that we needed to confront somebody with one of these problems, what would be the reason to confront them? What would be our motive to do it? Because we recognize they're destroying their soul, searing their conscience, harden their heart, number one. And number two, that we do want to protect innocence that they could potentially influence from an ongoing purposeful destructive life. Right? Second paragraph. It says, Christ's death was for the sins of every human being, everywhere. Many people simply do not know this great truth yet. To bring this news with an invitation to respond is the evangelistic mission of of Christians. Because God shows no partiality, Christians are called to treat everyone with respect and integrity, giving them a chance to embrace the good news that is for them as well. Uh, What do you think this means? His death was for the sins of everyone. What did his death do to, for, or about sins? What does death do to sins? Destroys it for their source. It destroys sin. Yeah, yeah, but, but the sins, all the sins of people, the, uh, this death is for that. What did it do for that? It paid the price. There had to be a death penalty. Somebody had to pay it. This is what's taught. It's fraud. It's not true. Is it about our acts and deeds? Or are the acts and deeds the evidences, the symptoms of sinfulness in the heart? From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good of the good sort of him. The evil man brings forth the evil of the evil sort of him. So the sins are like fever, cough, and chills to the person with pneumonia. It just simply shows the sickness, the symptoms, the external evidences of what's going on inside. The fever, cough, and chills are not the problem with somebody with pneumonia. It's the pneumonia that's the problem. So my cough is better than yours. Than your <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure. When we sin, does sin do something to us? What does sin do to us? Changes us. Then what does Christ need to do about our sins? Heal the damage that they've done to us. And the source. Change the, the, the nature so we get a new nature, just as we read earlier. So the underlying motives change. But also, before we've come to Christ, or perhaps in our journey and struggle to fully be committed to Christ, we have actually maybe participated in acts that we knew were wrong, and we feel guilt and shame over those. We've damaged ourselves in some way. He doesn't change the history. He didn't undo David's adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and, and, and resurrect Uriah. He didn't turn the clock back. What he did is he healed the heart, mind, character of David. And so what he, what he does, he doesn't do anything about the deeds. 
He does something about the damage that the deeds have done to us and to others who trust him. Why does God show no partiality? Because of his character, which is the foundation of his laws, and his laws are design laws, and they never change. They're the same today, tomorrow, and, and forever. And so they show no, no partiality. Pick any division in society, black, white, Hispanic, Christian, Jew, Muslim, and have them all jump off a building together. Gravity will treat them exactly the same. Have them all tie a plastic bag over the head. The law of respiration will treat them all exactly the same. There is no, there is no, there is no discrimination. There's no distinction and how God's law works. But some people miss this because of what appears to be differences in outcomes. A Norwegian and a Nigerian both stand for hours in the Miami heat sun in the summer. Hours. Without sunscreen, without protection. Norwegian and a Nigerian. Does the sun treat them differently? No. No, it does not. The sun treats them exactly the same. But many people miss this because the outcomes are different. And why are the outcomes different? Because the sun did something different? Or because there was something about them that was different? The sun sent just as many photons down, just as much UV radiation down on both of them. But there was something about them that reacted differently to it. And God is a source of infinite truth, infinite love that he pours out on all hearts and minds. But some people resist it and turn away from it and reject it. Other people respond to it. Outcomes are different, but God treats everybody the same. His laws work the same. The law of worship, by beholding we become changed, works the same in everyone. And so what are you worshiping? What are you spending time on? What are you looking at? What are you watching? What are you choosing to believe? That actually neurobiologically changes you. I have a theory. I don't know if I should send, I don't know if I should share my speculations with you. Should I say, it's not something we can prove. It's speculation. No, never mind. No. <laughs> okay. Speculation. Speculation. Okay. So, so, so the human brain, you know, the hundred billion neurons and, and each neuron can have up to 10,000 connections to other neurons, 40 quadrillion interconnections and each dendrite has, um, uh, 10 million um, microtubules, and the microtubules are made up of billions of uh, tubulin molecules which have electrons that make electron clouds that share, forming a, a, um, a uh, quantum interaction. And those electron clouds, when you're in a state of uncertainty, they will be uh, unconformed as you're thinking about a problem and thinking about an idea. Thinking about, but as you make a decision to choose, oh, no, this is what I believe, those electron clouds collapse, making a change in your microtubules that solidify your belief now, and you have a certain closed mind. You will not change your belief unless something causes you to go, wait a second, maybe that was wrong. The electron clouds open again, and you now are in a position of uncertainty, and then you make a new decision that conforms differently. As we make decisions and beliefs and are changed, we change the harmonics, the 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 vibrations, if you will, of our neurobiology, our quantum, and we either align more and more and more with evil, which puts us more in harmonic with demonic forces, which makes us more susceptible to hearing their energies, if you will, or we have more and more and more truth and love, which changes us in a different direction, and we become more close to the Holy Spirit who actually works in us and transforms us and we can hear the spirit of god have you ever heard the spirit of god not through your ears but in your heart you you've, you you felt in the movements that's moving your neurobiology in a different direction the truth actually has an impact on us our decisions actually change us. that's my speculation on that we'll see how it unfolds with the science did i scare you <laughs> 
At the same time, God's truth must not be compromised. What is God's truth? It talks in here about how um, church history sadly shows the compromise and accommodation of culture has yielded a patchwork of pseudo-Christian beliefs posing as authentic Christianity. This is well said. They recognize there's a pseudo-Christian belief out in the rest of the world. Uh, of course, uh, you know, this organization doesn't have any pseudo-Christian beliefs. So all the rest of them. Well, what is the most core pseudo-Christian belief? To make God's government look like human governments. That God runs his universe like Caesar runs Rome. That God's laws are a bunch of rules and he's imperial and he keeps a checklist and he inflicts punishments and he runs his government like we do. That is the most pseudo-Christian thing you can have. And that's the way almost everyone sees Christianity. And so they teach things like, well, that hurricane was God's punishment for that city not being godly enough. God must punish. God brings disasters to punish people. So quickly, Monday's lesson talks about culture impact. Let's look at the lessons they want us to learn. Genesis 16, 1 through 3 is Abraham takes Hagar to have a child. And what's the lesson we learn from this culture? First off, I don't think this was merely culture. Abraham could have had other wives prior to this point in his life. He never did. The culture would have accepted it, uh, but he never did. So I don't think this was a cultural thing. I think this was Abraham seeking to fulfill God's promises on his own. And so once he decided to seek God's, fulfill God's promise to have a child on his own, then he did it through the cultural acceptable norms. Okay. Now, if this was Abraham living in our culture today... He wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have taken a, the handmaiden, the, the, the maid that cleans their house. He wouldn't have done that. What he would have done today, with the same motive, he's either found a surrogate woman to impregnate and carry the child for the two of them, which we do today in our society, and everybody thinks that's okay, and he would have done that, or he would have divorced Sarah and got a different wife. That's how our culture would do that. So the lesson, you can't f- fulfill God's plan by doing it our way. That's the lesson. You can't fulfill God's plan doing it our way. Our way makes it worse. Genesis 35, 1 through 4, Jacob instructs all his family to give up their idols uh, to foreign gods. What's the lesson we learn? The lesson is there, uh, there's a time that comes in each of our lives where we have to make a choice. A time where we ha- we've been wavering between two opinions. And, and, and the continued state of wavering becomes harmful and we have to decide. Elijah at Carmel. If God is like this, worship him. If God is like this, worship him. Stop wavering between two opinions. In in, in our church, here's the two opinions. God is love, but he'll kill you and torture you as long as you deserve. Two opinions. They're not the same. Stop wavering between these two. Reject this imperial view and choose the God of love. So... The lesson is make, make a decision and stop wavering. Ezra 10, this is what Russell brought up, uh, they sent away all their foreign wives and their children. Get your mind around that. Women. Because the women were sent away. The men were not sent away. All their foreign wives and their children. What lesson is taught? Rid yourselves, rid from your lives all the ties to selfishness of this world, cutting away our loyalties to anything that is opposed to God's kingdom. That's the lesson. Would this mean ridding ourselves of our loyalties to our human governments? Where is your citizenship? 
would it mean ridding ourselves and our lives from working to accomplish God's purposes through passing human laws and electing certain leaders to get a certain political outcome or a certain law overturned so that we force people to live the moral life that we think is right for them. Would it mean that we, we rid ourselves of trying to do that? Well, let me tell you, Christianity is really in trouble then because they're trying to fulfill what they believe is God's goal and purpose through human legislation. First Kings 11, Solomon marries many wives from other nations. What's the lesson? And, and by the way, I pointed out a couple lessons ago and some people felt uncomfortable that we don't find condemnation in Scripture for, for Solomon having all these wives. We find condemnation for him going after other gods. That wasn't to suggest that God wanted him to have all these wives. We don't find condemnation about Rahab lying. You also don't find commendation. Well lied, Rahab. You don't find commendation for all these wives either. But God used his decisions, I think, as an object lesson that I pointed out a few lessons back, even though it wasn't his plan for him to do it, it wasn't his design, didn't want him to do it, he did it, and God used it, I think, to teach a very beautiful object lesson. That's why he had him write the Song of Solomon. And we talked about it earlier. So the lesson here, though, that's right, but, but he, wasn't, he wasn't condemned in Scripture Correct. for the other wives. He was condemned for going after the other gods. What would have been the lesson had he converted all of them to Yahweh worship? There's a different lesson there if he'd have done that. Different object lesson, right? And so the lesson, though, of culture here is, bring, is, is a, one of bringing worldly influences into our lives corrupts good character. That's the lesson. Bringing worldly influence. Bringing people. Uh, it says in Corinthians, I think it's Corinthians, uh, a bad company corrupts good character. Is that Corinthians or Thessalonians? Bad company corrupts good character. That's the principle. So we have to look into our world, into our lives, and who we're hanging out with, and who we're connecting to, and who we, we align up with. And are we bringing people in that we begin to love and trust who don't practice God's principles? It's vulnerable to us. I think it's easy to think that you'll be a good influence on other people. But I heard what I considered a good example one time when a, a girl went to her minister and said, you know, I want to marry this non-Christian. I think I'll be a good influence on him. And so he said, well, get up on my desk. And she was surprised by that. He said, well, you know, lift me up to your desk, to the top with you. And of course, you know, I can't lift him up on the desk. He said, okay, my turn. And just went like that and brought her down to the floor. He said, the chance, like in Solomon, I'm sure he had the idea originally that he could be a good influence on these. Many women of his wives were mere political contracts with other leaders and so on. He might have actually had the vision that through them he could bring God's gospel to all those other nations. He might have had that vision. But it's much easier for it to go the other way. Really quickly on the bottom pink section it asks what things in particular in your culture help to help are helpful to the family and what are harmful to the family. I'm going to go through just list some of these. Here's what I, here's just some ones I listed that can be helpful to our families. Freedom of religion, education, Moral equality of all people, regardless of race, gender, uh, ethnic background, and so forth. Principles of autonomy. Programs that uh, help the poor, infirmed, and elderly. Uh, Health care, fire, firemen, police, and government order. 
caring for the earth, promoting a clean and healthy environment, national parks, food inspection and safety standards, clean water and sanitation, regulations against child labor and exploitation of children. All all these things are good for families and for health. Things that, and that's not an exhaustive list, just some. What are, what things are not? Competitiveness. Get rich as the primary goal of life. The false idea that because people are equal in moral worth, that they are equal in abilities. That's a corrosive idea in our society. Because we're equal in worth does not make us equal in abilities. Promise you would not want me to be an artist for anything. (laughs) That is not my ability. The false idea that because we have freedom of conscience, that all beliefs are equally valid or healthy. That's another corrosive idea in our society. The intolerance of any opinion or viewpoint that's not your own, which is on the rise. Star worship, you know, the the, the famous people worship. Instant gratification. Fast foods, junk foods, GMO foods, TV, gaming, evolutionism, and godless philosophies. God presented as the source of inflicted punishment, sending disasters that we are owed something by our government. These things are corrosive. All right, we're over time, so I I had several things. The next lesson was going to be how do you cope? How do you cope with change? How do you cope with loss? That's in the notes. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your love and for your mercy and for your goodness and and for your constancy and reliability and your never-changing methods and principles. And we ask that your Holy Spirit will come and make effective in our hearts the achievements and victories of Christ to bring us the motives of your kingdom, that we can be partakers of your nature, and that we will be effective also in communicating these truths to help break through this miasma, this, this darkness, this distortion that so many minds are caught in, that the world can be lighted and you'll come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.